This is Limit Up, the place where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology to take your trading to the next level. Hey, traders, this is Eddie Horn from Top Step Trader, and this is Limit Up. It's where we talk with traders, market participants, and trading psychologists to help you improve your trading. Today, I am joined here with Michael Patak, the founder and CVO of Top Step Trader. Michael, how are you doing today? Hey, Eddie. What's going on? You know what, Mike? We've got an interview of interviews today. Legendary trader Blair Hull. Yeah, Eddie, Blair has an incredible track record. I know yeah. I've uh, followed him uh, before this, heard about he was coming on, and got really, really excited. He's, uh, he's constantly been, what, 30 years ahead of his trend in trading, something like that. Incredible. So, uh, right. so excited to hear what uh, he has to say. 30 years ago, what he was thinking. Uh, you know, I, I tell you, that at that time, you, you know, when I was on the trading floor, uh, electronic trading was sort of a, uh, you know, you, you'd sort of giggle under your breath like, hey, look at those guys. Looks like they're playing video games over there, you know, but he knew it before that. Yeah, when I showed up to the markets, it just started electronic trading. So that's all I was used to. I was eight 30 years ago. So right. that that uh, that is exciting. I mean, everything that he, uh, uh, what I've read about him, what I know about him, uh, excited to hear what he's going to talk about because he is, uh, he was definitely ahead of his time. Well, you know what? Let's get ready for this. Uh, let's get started. Here's my conversation with legendary trader Blair Hull. Well, today we have a very special guest, American businessman, investor, Democratic politician and philanthropist. Uh, would you please welcome Blair Hull. Blair, very nice to have you here today. Thank you. Good to be here. Blair, you are a legend. I'm going to start that out. I'm going to get that out of the way right now. Once we made contact uh, with your group and having you come on, it was talk of the town here. Very impressive man, very successful man, and uh, somebody that... I'm going to say has a lot of fantastic stories to share. Uh, and I'm hoping that you do that with us. Be glad to. All right. Fantastic. Now, Blair, if you can give us a little bio, um, how you started, what you got into, what got you into trading and uh, where you are now. I'd say my uh, beginnings in the business started in Las Vegas and Tahoe. Really um, with a game of blackjack, game of 21. Uh, my uh, brother-in-law at the time suggested that he could go to Lake Tahoe and play blackjack and earn the money for his vacation, which was a small amount of money in those times in, in, in the late 60s. And I said, no, that's not right, because if you could do that, you wouldn't be working as an accountant, which he was doing. Mm -hmm. And so although he played two to ten dollars i said well you should be playing more than if you really do have an advantage and so i got into the game of 21 blackjack as a card counter studied the game worked hard uh, for about two years built my bank up to roughly ten thousand dollars and was fortunate enough at that time to join a team and with that team we took exams to make sure that we were all qualified and that we all had uh, a skill level that met the criteria to be able to beat the game. And so it was my experience in the next five years of playing uh, really 50, it was roughly 50 days a year for five years that gave me the capital and the experience of dealing with capital fluctuations that allowed me to go into the options in the securities business. Now, 
I saw the movie 21. Was it something like that where one guy started out and said, hey, I got this, uh, I got this method. It works. Now I need to build a team. Is that something to that? Uh... Quite similar. It was in the 70s, not in the 90s. So, we, had a, we had a larger advantage than those people did. Okay. So, the MIT team. So now, now, the thing is, did that continue? What, what, had, what was the end result there? It uh, actually, we were barred in nineteen. It was um, nineteen seventy-five, and uh, that large team that had um, was doing quite well disbanded. But other teams formed, and so teams played in the eighties before the MIT came up in the 90, 90s. So that was really an old concept, and it wasn't until the nineties that the uh, casinos are got got onto it, changed the rules such that it's more difficult to play that strategy. Now, now you say they barred you. Did uh, I mean? Did a guy with a crooked nose walk up to you and say, "Hey, you know what? You got to leave"? Or uh, how did they do that? No, it was actually two people, one, both of them, about six five and about two sixty, yeah. and they both were on both sides of it, and you made sure that you didn't that you didn't come back. Uh, so that's uh, barrings came in a, a variety of ways. Um, Bill Hare at Lake Tahoe would say, uh, would call you away and say, Mr. Hull, um, we can't allow, we can't deal blackjack to you. You know why we can't. And uh, we'd like you to have dinner on us, but please don't play blackjack here. And uh, that's a very nice barring versus the barring that might occur where two people. Right. I've seen the movie Casino. Yeah, you didn't want that. But but... but on the other hand, uh, those casinos could bar you and ask you not to leave. So the the violence, there really wasn't any violence. That was all. That was mostly Hollywood. Now, what was your next thought? Okay, this journey was cut short. Were you thinking of going to some other casinos around the country or we... well we continued to play that strategy but at a smaller scale so we didn't get as much attention but at that time i had actually um leased a seat for 500 dollars a month on the pacific stock exchange had been using the you know trying to get an edge in the game uh, associating uh, a value with an option, trying to figure out what these options were really worth. And we tried to buy cheap options and sell expensive options. And that really got me started in the, in the futures and options business. Now, was it something that you had deep inside you, the passion, the desire uh, for the, the competition of making money? The risk was, was risk involved as far as a, uh, a high, I mean, was that uh, very self satisfaction? Uh, to see victory when there was such risk? Well, risk uh, plays a, a very big piece of this. It's um, I was amazed that people couldn't, uh, even in either the options game or the or the game of 21, that there was a big advantage, but you had to be able to deal with the capital fluctuations. When you have $10,000 and you lose half your bankroll and you go to $5,000, you then have to cut your bets in half. You can't double them. You must actually reduce the amount of capital that you wager. It's a little bit contrary to what you think. And of course, if you double your bank, you can now bet twice as much. That little simple concept and having the discipline to reduce your wagers when you uh, when your bankroll is now half of what it was before is is something that's very difficult for people to do. I see that a lot. 
I see that usually when your back's against the wall, you want to come out with both fists, you know, and, and that's going to get you in trouble a lot more. People don't realize that you need to scale back. You need to shut down a little bit. You need to take smaller steps to get yourself back to where you started. Right. Now, what happened after that? Uh, what progressed as far as uh, Blair Hull and his ideas, his dreams? Well, I had actually done some computer programming, and so I was prepared to automate the process that I was um, dealing with on the trading floor. Um, so as as exchanges slowly uh, automated, and we only automated after Germany took the first step with the Deutsche Termosbüro automated their process, uh, that the exchanges here automated theirs. So I was prepared to um, automate my market-making operation. What brought you to the automation in, instead of, uh, I mean, was it that the uh, the computers you felt gave you the edge? Well, um, the first thing that I realized when I went down to the Pacific Stock Exchange, that this whole process of all this paper running back and forth uh, could be automated. Somebody could write a program to do this whole thing. And of course, that's what's happened. All exchanges are now machines. You thought of this idea 30 years ago. I thought it, about it in the 70s. Now, I had I thought I had to make a lot of money on the floor of the exchange in about two years because this whole thing is going to be eliminated. So I knew in the 70s that these exchanges, the floor would be eliminated. Now, my timing was off by about 30 years. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I did have the direction right. You know, and, and that was the thing, too, when, when uh, we started to see the electronic trading uh, on the trading floor. You know, uh, being in the pit, doing the open outcry, it was sort of a joke a little bit. You know, what are you guys doing playing video games up there? Um, but we knew, you know, we knew in our hearts that eventually this is going to get squeezed out. We're going to start getting fade out. Sort of like the, the horse and carriage when the automobile came. Sure. You know, and that's, what we're, that's where we're at right now. So I, I really got to give you props on that. And let me ask you real quick. You got a time machine? Uh, do I have a time? What's going to happen in the future? <laughs> <laughs> you knew 30 years ago. All right. Now, um, let me ask you a few questions here. Now. I know you mentioned in prior interviews that you had two or three ideas for discretionary trades each year. Two or three. All right. Um, now, what I'd l love to do is is dig into those a little more because, as legend has it, uh, you brought the you bought the low tick of the crash of 1987. Now, before we get into that story, which I definitely want to hear about, how do you formulate discretionary trades? Hmm. hmm. Discretionary trades. Well, most of uh, what I've done is try to buy cheap assets and sell expensive assets. Uh, so um, I don't know if that's once a specific trade, but in, in terms of the '87 crash, I can I can I can tell you I was in the right place at the right time uh, with that trade. Um, but that morning, I will tell you this: that I do tend to be a contrarian, and that was such an extreme situation. Uh, when we heard that the Chicago Mercantile was going to shut down trading and we knew that the New York Stock Exchange wants an answer in the phone, we knew that this was an extreme situation. And so I actually said to the staff, send somebody to the library and see what has happened on previous trading halts because there was going to be a trading halt. And because I was, I was convinced that if there were a trading halt, that has to be a signal that 
we are massively oversold at this point, and that the panic has hit the hit the floor, and we can we can we can buy them now. Um, so, and then that was combined. So I said, be long on the halt. I told the firm we had 19 people in the firm. We'll be long on the halt. We didn't know when the halt was going to come. That was that was that was the issue. So um, when Drexel Burnham comes in to sell, just happened the firm didn't last last much longer. Uh, but uh, they came in um, and asked me where would I buy a hundred contracts, and they were was trading at five twos and threes, exactly, and four lots, right. and where that was that was a trade that was ten times anything that had been going up. I gave them a ridiculously low price. And I actually learned that from a friend of mine, John Stafford, who is a, a very famous trader on the CBOE. And he said, when somebody asks you, when you're in the pit, when somebody asks you for a market for any size, whatever it is, you give them a price, but you give them a ridiculous price if it's a big, big lot. And that's what I did. And and they said, you, you own them. And I swallowed very hard thinking that, oh, my God, uh, we were already long. And at that time, we were massively long. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, when I was in the pit, what's in there? You know, quarter bid sold. You know, it, how many did I get? <laughs> you got a hundred. So I understand that. And, uh, I mean, just just being in that, uh, that zone, that uh, tunnel vision that you might get i know that i've experienced that a lot on the trading floor when you know you get the fast market or you got an error or uh, you, you get a big size somebody says you know buy 2000 you know um all right get the calculator out you guys ready to start adding you know um so i understand that situation it was it was uh how, how did you feel about it? i mean how did you feel emotionally when on a day uh in a situation event that was uh, so extreme that you've got some size now well, we really didn't know what it was. It was a very chaotic situation yeah. during that time because options were priced, and they didn't realize that options could be priced more than $100. And so your sheets didn't even show things. They only, If it was $106, it would be marked at $6, not 106 So none of the accounting was right during that time. So during the entire month of October of 87, we really didn't know what our P&L was. Right. It was it was a very scary time. You know, I, I started in the business eighty five, eighty six, and when that hit, I did not realize. I mean, I was actually right on the pit, S and P pit. You know, and uh, um, I mean, it was just so chaotic at certain times, and then it would be dead silence, and then it would be so chaotic again, and the whole trading floor, it would drop a whole handle. S and P would drop a whole handle, and it was it was the whole the whole trading floor would be in an awe. Ooh, you know, and, and then you'd hear some noise, then it would get silent, and it would drop another handle. And, uh, you know, at the time, it was like, I, I thought this was part of the business, but obviously, uh, it wasn't. And, uh, you know, a lot of people got hit hard. You know, a lot of people, uh, even people that weren't on the trading floor got hit hard. Now, uh, we talked about the, uh, the two or three ideas for discretionary trades each year. How often... Would you act on these ideas? Hmm. Well, we were acting every day as a market maker because we were providing liquidity for for other people in in many different locations. Uh, so the the ideas that I'm talking about are are, are ideas of mispricing. Okay. Uh, and uh, the uh, one of the thoughts that I've 
that I'm doing, working on right now is taking what had happened in blackjack. Remember we talked about counting the cards mm -hmm. and there are 10 different cards in the, in the deck and each of them has a value in order to get whether your advantage, whether the odds are in your favor or the casino's favor. Could you explain those odds real quick? In terms or of, the, the values of the cards, I mean. Well, the values of the cards, the simplest system was two through six. You count as plus one. Seven, eights, and nines were neutral. Tens and eights were aces were minus one. The idea being that if there are lots of little cards have left the deck, therefore you have a positive count, then you're going to get lots of blackjacks, lots of tens and aces, right. and the odds will be in your favor. You get paid one and a half to one. That's the basic concept of blackjack. But if you think about the S&P 500, and you think about all the indicators that we have out there, it's a little bit like counting cards to determine whether you have an advantage, whether the S&P 500 is going to go up or going to go down in the long run. And we've done a lot of research, and there are a couple of different papers that we have out um, uh, on SSRN. So you can... Uh, what is SSRN? Social Science Research Network. Uh, we do have one paper that was published in the uh, Journal of Portfolio Management, um, which uh, um, I would encourage people to, to, to look at that talks about the indicators that tell you whether the equity prices are cheap or expensive. And we really talk in terms of the equity risk premium. How much are you going to get paid for equity returns versus for assuming risk in the equities market versus treasury bills? So it's really the return on the S&P 500 minus the T-bill rate, and that's the equity risk premium that we're trying to predict. Now, that's formula or recipe that you guys put together or you put together. Well, the equity risk premium is something that's been – it's argued about in academia for, for – has been forever. How much do you get paid for equity returns? That's what – over T-bills. Okay. Now, you, you mentioned edge. Now, as a trader, as a, uh, a professional, I think in any career – we're always looking for the the edge, the advantage. For example, a professional sports figure. How do they get the edge? They do their work. All right, uh, professional pitchers. They're gonna they're gonna do all the stats on all the batters. You know, what should I throw them? A fastball, curveball, you know, slider. What are they disadvantaged at? How do we get the advantage and on the opposite end see a disadvantage? Well, um, if um if you don't know where the, who's got the advantage or who the fish is at the game, it's you. <laughs> that's, there, that's, there you go. That's the, okay. So the, the, the question is, um, you know, they're really, I think there are really only two things in, in, in the financial markets. It's either speed or it's uh, value. Those are the only two things. And so if you are, if you're not co-located, then there is your server that is making these decisions. It's not next to the exchange then you obviously don't have a speed advantage. Somebody else is faster than you are. Uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is value. Do you have, is this public information that everybody else has? Well, chances are you don't have an advantage then, unless you're unless you're looking at it in some unique way. Yeah, that's what we talked about too. It's when we're on the trading floor, usually you'd get information. If a market moved, you'd get information from one of the phone clerks who had somebody at a desk trading. Uh, or we had the, the Reuters. We had the board uh, board on the wall uh, from Reuters. Um, nowadays, I mean, everybody can plug in 
you see your charts, you see your volume, you see the positions. Uh, something hits the wire. That's the reason why that market moved. Um, how can we as traders, single traders, get an edge? What would be your recommendation? If I was in the new trading and, and uh, you know, I said, Blair, um, I need an edge. I, it seems like everybody is moving when, uh, when the first person moves. Well, um, your chances of finding an edge in a very actively traded product is less is it's less likely than finding something that is thinly traded. Um, so, um, one of the areas that we're we're doing some work on is in the VIX in volatility complex. There are lots of places that there it is traded in so many different ways. So there's there are some ways to find some advantage in that product. We think. Um, but unless you're doing something that's unique, uh, chances are you don't have an edge. Let's talk about the future of trading, all right? If anybody, I'm going to ask about the future of trading. Uh, Blair, you're a great candidate. Now, there are a lot of people out there who think a passive investing revolution is coming. All right? In fact, there was a famous bet between Warren Buffett and a hedge fund manager about active versus passive investing. Um, I know you established the Hulk Tactical ETF, which is an actively managed ETF. Can you tell us a little bit about why you think there's still a place for active stock selection? Well, um, uh, we did this specifically um, because we felt there was an edge in, in the S&P 500 that you could actually, that returns are predictable. There has been a change in the literature, in the academic literature, to say from somewhere around 2008 it changed. It said before that they thought it was an efficient market. Now we believe, and most academics would agree, that there are certain indicators that tell you whether equities are going to outperform or underperform. And it is in Hull Tactical uses these techniques to. Um, produce the strategy that is in HTUS, the, the ETF, that now is available okay. to the public. All right. Now, uh, broadly speaking, how does Hull Tactical ETF generate how long or short it will be? It, it calculates those based upon a series of indicators that have been accepted in the academic literature, and we combine them in a variety of ways using machine learning techniques that um, combine to give us our optimal strategy. All right, now, algorithms, all right, talking about that. Uh, we do see, or actually, we do interpret uh, some market moves from algos. Uh, some of the uh, traders, we call them the robots, man versus machine. How would you describe that? Well, um, the uh, the issue of um, well, first I'd like to go back a little bit to the stigma of market timing. Most sure, people timing. believe that buy and hold is the only way to go. That market timing uh, will actually hurt you. Uh, we believe that if it's done in the appropriate way, it can actually help you. And that's come a that's come about that shift in the academic literature and in, in, in the thought process has occurred because of two reasons. One, the availability of data that we did not have prior to 2000. 
In 2000, there was this massive explosion of data that's now available. Not only is it provided by the government in more different kinds of reports, but we even have satellites that tell you how many cars are in a parking lot now. So now we have this new kinds of information, but also we have new predictive analytics that even do things like drive your car for you. Right. Um, so if you've, um, and I actually took a machine learning class recently where one of the exercises was to look at a screen and look at uh, the pixels on the screen. And there were 10,000 pixels. And you had to figure out what the equation is of the road so you could tell where the road was going. That was one of the exercises. So these are the yeah. kinds of things that are happening. The data analytics, the predictive analytics that we didn't have before, along with this explosion of data, allows market timing now to be a reality. We, we talk about uh, the technology we've got right now. Uh, we talk about the driverless cars. Now, we've brought that up in the broadcast a few times. Um, just putting a bit of trust into a driverless car. Can I segue over into putting trust in a an algorithm, putting trust in a uh, in data, computed data for your trading? Well, first of all, um, uh, there are a lot of ways um, that, that things can be back tested, but you have to make sure that you do a walk forward simulation with these strategies with no look forward bias. And there's sort of an art to being able to do that. Um, so it's very easy to fool yourself with a backtest. So I'm not I'm not kidding myself there. But there are ways that you can minimize the the the, the danger in doing that. But everything that we do is data driven completely. There's no emotions that come into the the strategies that Hull Tactical uses. Okay, now let me ask you, algorithms, expiration dates. Is there expiration dates on these? Can we use these? Or are, are they constantly being um, changed out, exchanged with other ideas and data for different market situations? The new technique is called ensembles of models. So we have, we build a model with one technique. One technique may not capture all the information. There may be a linear model that captures one thing. Another would be a nonlinear model that would capture a different kind of information. So we generally have ensembles of models, and these the weights on each of the models change in a time-varied way. So we're not talking about a single model, but we're talking about multiple models. And then the weights on those models will change over time. So you, you just don't have a pistol. You've got an arsenal. You've got several weapons, and you're weighting those weapons. Yeah. All right. Uh, we talk a lot about market state here at Top Step Trader. Now, whether that's a, a trending market or one that's more range-bound, what market states does Hull Tactical work best in? Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Well, there is um, – I will tell you this, that uh, there have been some – um, new academic papers on trying to see, uh, distinguish whether variables, indicators are more predictive in, um, in different states of the market. And it's sort of interesting how the, the state of the market in, in terms of general is, is one of the def definitions is simply is whether it's above its 200 day moving average or not. And it ends up that, um, um, let's say trend following works better 
in a period in the S&P 500. This is according to a, a recent article, uh, and we've confirmed this work. We, we try to replicate the work that we see, that other academics do, and the papers that we present, we have descriptions of how to replicate the paper. The replicatable research is a new term that is being used more it's because so many times we have academic work out. So this idea of states of the market, uh, we're actually above our, obviously above our 200 day moving average. So the, um, actually it tends the the prices tend to be more mean reverting on a, in a positive state than they are in a negative state. And so, okay. I appreciate you answering some of those questions. Now I want, I've actually, uh, I've got a few questions for you. And then, of course, I've got some of our podcast fun questions. Now, I was reading your bio, and honestly, all I could think of was Tom Brady, Michael Jordan, Blair Hull. I mean, guys that are hitting success, um, not looking back, and becoming legends, right? Now, you, you sort of smirk at that, and, you know, it, it's love it, take it, grab it, embrace it. You're a legend, okay? I even was, as I was reading the bio, all right, here's some of the things. One of the 40th greatest traders of all time coming from Trader Monthly, all right? The next one, top 25 smartest players, Worth Magazine. Smartest players, okay? Now, let me ask you, did that go back to the casino days where you you were looking for that edge? You were looking for that exploit. You were looking for that... I need to be better than any other move here. I I I go back to the right place, right time. <laughs> that's 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 how my career has gone. <laughs> I've been in the right place, right time. Right place, so, right time. You know what? And it uh, does does help to have the right skills. Um, I would I would encourage any um, people aspiring traders to um, have a good quantitative background. I think the I'm I'm a big believer in the sciences. You've got to have math, physics. Um, computer science. Uh, so if you're in school today, I'd, I'd spend your time. They're, they're very, uh, one of the things that we don't hire any, any traders now that don't program. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you when you did, uh, all types of strategies that were deployed at Hull Trading, um, the reason for hiring non-traditional trader types, what kind of people were those trader types? Now I know being on the trading floor, if you were big and loud, they'd give you uh, they'd give you paper to fill. You'd be a filling broker. Um, if you were big and loud, you'd probably be one of the most or one of the more uh, frequent locals trading. Somebody that get a lot of business. What was the type of traders that you looked for? What were the traits? Well, these are the traits that um, were in the '80s and '90s, '80s and early diners that we hired, um, and they were usually people from relatively good schools they didn't have to be they weren't ivy league necessarily but they were uh, good universities um we tended to hire um people with quantitative backgrounds uh degrees in math and physics and computer science okay all right also i was quite impressed as i read that um you ran for u.s senate and you did very well but the person that beat you out became president, Barack Obama. And I was thinking, you know what? If Maybe if Blair would have beat Barack. The question is, do you think he would have ever been president of the United States? 
being president of the United States, is a, that's a very difficult job. It is, and I would that not want that. It's a very difficult You're job. Right. When I looked at the requirements to be in the Senate, I, I thought, I can do that job. Being president of the United States requires a lot of skills, and uh, I'm hopeful that uh, 2020 we're going to find somebody that uh, can do that job. You got that. Okay. Another question here I'd like to ask you. Uh, we talk about trading. We talk about the highest of highs, the lowest of lows. Blair, what was your scariest trade you ever made? Well, it was um, certainly, then we're going to go back to that 87, 87? Time, that 87. That was a very scary time. And uh, everybody was scared to death. In fact, that was the first time that I ever saw the pits empty with when volatility had increased to such an extent. It was the first time, normally when we get very volatile times and there's lots of volume, the pits, people run into the pits, the pits are overflowing. This was the only time I ever saw the pits empty. We had fewer people in the pits. One, because they'd gone broke, or the clearing firm had suddenly rate tripled the margins and i think i think our 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 regulatory um nature changed because we used to we used to uh, right now we do not raise margins during volatile times which is the smartest thing to keep the markets active when they tightened the margins it was just uh, it caused a liquidity problem you know, sometimes uh, when you'd see a, a broker doing very bad and adding to it and adding to it, uh, you'd have security come down and pull him off the floor, and you knew exactly what was going on. They'd tap him on the shoulder, take his cards, and uh, you wouldn't see him for a little while. Now, how about somebody just getting started in the trading business? What would be your best advice? Hmm. Ooh. Tough question. Well, uh, I'm going back to that education background. You got to have a good educational background. So, um, without that, I don't think you're going to make it these days. Okay. And I mentioned about that time machine, asking if you had a time machine. But let's just say that I've got a time machine. I'm going to take you back in time. Uh, I'm going to take you back in time when Blair was a young man, right? Not knowing what he wanted to do, where he wanted to go. You had the opportunity to talk to that young Blair. What would you tell him? Hmm. Hmm. Well, that's a, that's a, that's that's a difficult one. Um, say, you know, I took some risks. They they happen to have worked out. <laughs> I don't. Um, I'm going back to school. Get good grades in school. Okay. I mean, that's where it starts. You need your education. You need your knowledge. And that sort of branches out uh, into opportunities for success. Agree with you on that. Next question. What's your favorite toy? Now, a toy could be anything. It could be a uh, summer home. It could be a car. It could be your motorcycle. It could be a collection you've got of Star Wars action figures. Whatever. What's your favorite toy? Um, well, I'm going to tell you a story about cars here. All right. I actually I'm... had one of the first Priuses. Really? So right here in Chicago. And I got uh, my friend, Pat Arbor, who's the chairman of the past chairman of the board of trade. Um, he was going down to buy a Prius and he was going to buy one. I said, buy one for me too. He did. He bought, a, bought me a Prius. So we had one of the first hybrids, a big believer in trying to save the environment for our children. 
And um, so I was going to do my share. And so I go out to California and I'm thinking, well, I can fit in. There are more Priuses out there than anywhere else. And then somebody said, you got to go look at a Tesla. Well, guess what? I just bought a Tesla. <sighs> and talk about a toy. Talk about a, 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 a toy that does almost everything for you. If you can learn, if you can learn how to figure out how to use it, well, the technology. So right. I mean, this autonomous driving is is uh, got me very intrigued, and I love using the autonomous features on my on my Tesla. All right, fantastic, fantastic. Let me ask you. Let me just say one word: cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrencies. Crypto. Wouldn't it be nice if we'd owned? Uh, Bitcoin at and whatever whatever uh, price. It'd be nice if my parents bought Disney <laughs> years ago. Um, I think the blockchain technology obviously is gonna it's gonna it's very important. This idea of uh, being able to uh, do these transactions that go out to all kinds of um, places that uh, you can't cheat. You just absolutely right. can't cheat. I think that's the that's the answer here. Um, but um, I don't know. I think that uh, there are a number of funds that are starting to give you the ability to own blockchain or to, to own to own cryptocurrencies. Um, I don't think it hurts to have a small amount in your portfolio. Okay. Now, 30 years ago, you had the idea of using machines, and that paid off. You're way ahead of your time. Uh, if we can spring forward about, let's say, 10, 15 years. Where do you think the markets are going to be, and what do you think? You think it's going to be cryptocurrency? You think it'd be something else that uh, is a fashionable trade? Everybody wants a piece of. Where do you think we're going with these uh, with the financial world? Gee, I wish I could tell you. Oh, that would be a great. Um, I think that um, I'm still a believer. I'm I'm a believer in automation and taking information across markets. In other words, um, you get clues from other markets. Uh, we have uh, we have a number of trades up when currencies, grains, uh, across that take uh, information from other markets automatically into the pricing. So corn is is driven by uh, both oil and by the dollar. Anytime oil or the dollar moves, our price for corn changes. So you have to be able to instantaneously take that information across. And if you can do it along with economic indicators, and that's where we get into the machine learning right? and uh, the predictive analytics that will be part of the future. Fantastic. Blair, it's been a, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. It's been an honor uh, to talk to you, to pick your brain. Uh, tell us stories. Now, uh, I know that those that are listening, uh, they want to know a little bit more about Blair Hall. Where can people find you online? I think the um, the new work that we're doing is uh, under Hull Tactical. Um, look at that website. Just go under Hull Tactical, and it'll it'll give you a blog. It'll also give you our current. Uh, optimal position in the S&P 500 any one day and gives you the result. There's also, if you look at the daily report, you'll see the decomposition of the variables, such as I, I might just mention what I, I think the view of the overall market in the S&P 500. We're in a situation where we have um, prices, we're very overvalued relative to price to book, price to earnings, and price to dividends. And we do have a 
uh, principal components analysis of that to give us a good estimate of where, where our value-wise. But the thing to look for is if, if the banks start to tighten credit, that will be a sign that this bull market's is over. As of right now, they are still loosening credit. Right. And uh, that's a variable that we have under loan. And you'll see the decomposition of that in our daily report under Hull Tacticals. All right. HullTacticals.com. Check it out. And uh, one thing before you go, something I've lived and believed in. Um, and uh, your quote is... Now, tell me if I'm misquoting you. Uh, if you're missing an edge, there's no reason to play. If you don't have an advantage, you know, go home. Go home. It's, and I've <laughs> always lived under, uh, if you don't play to win, don't play. <laughs> so, uh, Blair, I really want to thank you. And uh, our listeners, thank you also here at uh, Top Step Trader Headquarters. It's a fantastic interview. And uh, I hope to see you again sometime down the road. Great. My pleasure. Good to be here. All right. Thank you very much, sir. All right, Mike, how'd you like that? Eddie, that was awesome. That <laughs> was, was awesome. Yeah, is there, there's a lot of good uh, little snippets. I was taking notes while I was uh, listening to it. You know, one thing here um, I, I, I got to point out is Blair attributes his success to being at the right place at the right time. And he, he does sort of mention about luck playing a role in everyone's success. Now, what's your take on it? Well, he talks about being there in the right place at the right time timing is huge in trading. I know that. You know, that's something that's very, very important is being uh, in the trade at the right time, being knowing when to get out at the right time. His timing, uh, just listening and <clears throat> kind of having my ear to, uh, to the speaker and be like, man, he was there at that time, perfect timing. He was there at the uh, uh, the Pacific Stock Exchange. I actually wanted to be a trader there uh, in my very, very early days. At the, and they, pa they, at the Pacific Stock Exchange? Yep, I lived out in L.A. I was about 21, and I wanted to be a trader at the Pacific Stock Exchange. I heard him start talking about it. I'm like, oh. And then I used to take those trips from L.A. to uh, to Vegas. I was not a good card counter like uh, Blair was, but um, – Hearing how he looks at things uh, through his card counting eyes is incredible. Mike, what takeaways did you get from this interview? I heard a lot about machine learning, Eddie, and and I was really uh, really kind of drawn to the fact that Blair's is, is he's taking a machine learning uh, course, and I, I have always heard in this business you never stop learning until you're done. Uh, he's continuing that educational road in, in, in a different way, and uh, that was that was something that kind of inspired me to say, hey. You got to keep educating yourself and keep educating educating yourself not only in in engaging with the markets but also in the new things that are coming out in today's to today's society as far as uh, AI learning, machine learning, all that kind of right. good stuff. Yeah, to be honest with you, I tell you, if I was in his position, I would have been I'd be kicking back on a beach, not thinking this, but you got to give him credit for uh, you know what I, I need to learn more. I need to learn more and. One thing that, that uh, you know, on the broadcast here at Top Step Trader, we're always talking about learning something new every day. And we've talked about that, too. You know, we've been in the business. I've been in the business about 30 years. Uh, you, you know, but every day there's something that 
can be learned, and and I got to admit that that yeah, happens. Yeah, the way he thinks about the markets, he mentioned basically thinking about the current markets in the same way that he thinks about blackjack. I thought that was really uh, a big takeaway for me. Uh, really intriguing uh, way of approaching that in probabilities, and and I always used to think in probabilities as well. And I used to uh, I I call it sitting on my hands in the beginning of the day, waiting for high probability trades, high probability trades. And that was something that uh, you could look at any trade and said, oh, this is going to be a winner. It's going to I'm going to go after that one. The high probability trades were ones I always focused on to help me build my stack, so to speak, getting out of the gate. And getting out of the gate means just beginning your each each and every your day, each and every one of your days, uh, not uh, behind the eight ball, so to speak, but uh, with a little bit of cushion. Makes right. your day a little bit easier. You know, you, you talk about the probabilities. He mentioned probabilities and uh, varying bets based on what is happening. And, you know, that's the basis behind Hull Tactical ETFs, finding out how many cards are in the deck. Um, having that edge, always have that edge, it, you know, and, and that sort of uh, segues into uh, what he's talking about when you're not doing something unique. You don't have an edge. Now, what, you, what was your take on that line? Well, if you don't have an advantage, go home. That was the big one, and that's minimizing your risk. That's understanding what hands you're dealt and then being able to play that accordingly. That, that to me, was a big takeaway. That was another uh, thing that pointed out. If you don't have an edge, go home. And that's so hard for somebody trading electronic because the thing is you, you, you log on. Yeah, you set up your charts, you, you read the information, you, you do your game plan, uh, and you're ready to go, and then all of a sudden the market is nowhere near where your game plan or your ideas are. What do you do? You just sit there, no, I want to trade, I want to trade, and that's the mentality of a lot of electronic traders is, if I turn my computer on, I need to trade. Now, see, now there's the mistake. And that's what kind of took me to my other takeaway that from this was the no emotions in trading. And, and I've always been around traders that – I would see their emotions, whether they're sitting next to me or standing next to me in the pit, and you could actually see their emotions. Now, nowadays, uh, you get these individuals that uh, have these uh, algos, they have these uh, high-frequency uh, uh, bots, they have all this type of automation there that helps them take the motions out of trading. I think that was uh, something I really took away. For someone like Blair, he does this with like an intense amount of research, and then he automates these strategies. So I thought that was really interesting takeaway. And for those of us that are kind of more discretionary traders, that's why we need to focus on trading psychology and this awareness. It's all reaction. It's it's all planned out. And that's what Blair was trying to say. The planned out actions, you know, um, not going to uh, react to uh, a deer in headlights. We're not, it's... No guesswork. No guesswork, exactly. It's it's all planned out. And I think that's where he saw his success. All right, Mike, anything else from the... Uh, interview we had with Blair? No, this is a unique interview. I really uh, saw it from a different angle. It was uh, a little bit different than what I'm used to as far as uh, a discretionary trader talking about their trading day. Uh, now I get to see, her, see it from an individual that's been very successful, saw saw something happening 30 years in advance, uh, cards counts cards, and then brings that all to the marketplace. And uh, came out a big winner, uh, and also continued to stay in the game and ever learning. I thought that was the most important part was the ever learning part. You got it. Completely agree with you. Well, I'd like to thank you, Mike, for being with us here. Um, hopefully, we'll get you back in the broadcast booth again. Oh, yeah, Eddie. This is fun. All right. All right, traders. Thanks for spending time with us. If you like this interview, check out our other conversations on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. Also, 
It would really help us out if you leave a rating or review. You can always provide us some feedback at LimitUp at TopStepTrader.com. And uh, next time, we'll talk to you. And, Mike, take care, my friend. Well, we'll see you, Addy. Bye-bye. See ya. Futures and Forex trading contain substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.